Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 3. Judges 3, starting in verse 7. Hear now the word of our God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Otniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when still he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about ten thousand of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for eighty years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed six hundred of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite chapters of the, of the Bible. 
Last week, we, we looked at the, the overarching pattern in, in chapter 2 of apostasy and deliverance in the, in the period of the judges. Because chapter 2 gives us the, sort of the, the, the pattern of the story. It also gives us a literary pattern that it, the rest of the book will follow with uh, decreasing fidelity to the pattern, even as Israel's fidel, fidelity to the Lord evaporates, so also the literary pattern evaporates. And, uh, but now, as we're beginning to get into the details of the pattern, it's worth noting that there are six cycles of, of rebellion and deliverance. Uh, there's the Mesopotamian oppression and the deliverance by Othniel, the Moabite oppression and the deliverance by Ehud. We hear the first two in, the, in chapter 3 here. Then there's the Canaanite oppression and the deliverance by Barak and Deborah. Then the Midianite oppression and deliverance by Gideon. The Ammonite oppression and the deliverance by Jephthah. And then the Philistine oppression and the deliverance by Samson. Each of these six cycles begins with the words, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave or sold them into the hands of the oppressor. Now, so there's six cycles, and scattered in between the six cycles are the names of six other judges, Shamgar, Tola, and Yair, Ibzan, Elan, and Abdon. Two patterns of six judges, that makes twelve judges, and no tribe has more than one judge. There are several judges whose tribe is not named. Uh, part of that, is, as we'll see, is because, uh, well, for instance, Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. He's probably not an Israelite. He may not be connected with any tribe. So, but there are 12 judges, and no tribe has more than one judge. Now, uh, Several commentators have noted that Leviticus 26, 18 to 28 says several times that God will punish Israel for his sins seven times. Judges only has six. Why is that? Well, I've, I've been suggesting that the book of Judges has this contrast between Judah and Benjamin and Israel's first two kings, Saul is from Benjamin, David is from Judah. Indeed, the book of Samuel will recount, you might say, the seventh apostasy, where, because it's in the seventh apostasy, that God will remove the Ark of the Covenant from Israel when Shiloh falls and when the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant goes down into the Philistine territory. And it's, in a sense, that's, that's the end of Israel. I mean, God will, in the book of Samuel, then say, okay, Israel has failed, and now I will appoint a king who is called to succeed where Israel has failed. So there's a certain sense in which Judges is, is designed as an incomplete story. If you know anything about Hebrew num numbering, if there's six of something, <laughs> you're waiting for the seventh. There's got to be a seventh. There are six judges. Where is the seventh? Samuel. There's a six apostasies. Where is the seventh? What to the book of Samuel. Uh, so there's a way in which... And, the, and then, and then in, in Samuel, you get a, a curious pattern itself because will Samuel deliver Israel? Sort of, but then he gets old and his sons don't walk in his ways. So will Saul deliver Israel? At first, but Saul is not a king after God's own heart. Indeed, Saul has all sorts of things about him that will remind us of the book of Judges. 
It's only when God raises up David, a king after God's own heart, that God will finally deliver Israel when there will be a king who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. And then, of course, if you know anything about David's story, you're like, well, I mean, yeah, that's sort of. Because, of course, we're looking for a king from Judah. We're looking for a king from Bethlehem. And the book of Judges itself will tell us to look for a king from Bethlehem who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. But, of course, this is all getting ahead of ourselves. In Judges, the main narrative is that Israel is looking more and more like the Canaanites. They're looking more and more like the nations around them, which will come to its conclusion in the book of Samuel with saying, give us a king like the nations around us. But that's illustrated in the opening cycles here in chapter 3. Now, the first cycle is the simplest. Verses 7 through 11 gives us a really short story about Othniel. There are very few details, uh, simply that Israel sinned by going after the Baals and the Asheroth, and so God sold Israel into the hand of Kushan Rishatayim, who oppressed Israel. Now, Asherah is, the, is, is, a, is, a, is a warrior goddess. She is associated with fertility, and her cult generally involves prostitution. Uh, Kushan Rishatayim is said to be the king of Mesopotamia, which suggests that he may be an Assyrian king uh, attempting to reassert Assyrian power in the region, but not really with all that much. Uh, I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't like the Assyrian armies of the old days or like the Assyrian armies under Sennacherib or Shalmaneser. This is a very weak Assyrian effort because it's able to be fought off by a, a minor judge like Othniel. Now, his name, Kushan Rishatayim, means Kushan the doubly wicked. I, I, I suppose if he was a modern king, he might have picked that name himself, because modern kings are like, oh, yeah, I'm the doubly wicked one. Uh, most likely in those days, this would be a, a nickname the Israelites used for him, rather than one that he picked for himself. Now, the, the simplicity of the account, and in, in fact, the identical wording that it uses from chapter 2, verses 11 to 23, suggests that Othniel should be viewed as, in a sense, the paradigm for the book. Indeed, as we go through the, the, the judges, most of the judges have some pretty significant blemishes. Where's Othniel's blemish? <laughs> now, my hunch is, he had plenty of them, but we're not told about any of them. Why not? I mean, we're told about the blemishes for all the others. Why not the blemish for Othniel? Because we're being told to look for a king from Bethlehem, to look for a king from Judah. So, for just as for the point of saying, look for, look for the leader from Judah. As we saw in chapter 1, when God said, Judah shall go first. Judah is the one that the Lord was with. God prospered Judah, and this message is being told to God's people. And I'm going to suggest the book of Judges probably comes from at least at some point when uh, there's some controversy over, sort of, should we follow the house of David or should we follow the house of Saul? Because the Judah-Benjamin controversy, I mean, after the time of Solomon, Judah and Benjamin aren't fighting each other anymore. Judah and Benjamin are now on the same team, and 
it's the other ten tribes that take off. And so it's probable, probable that there's something going on in, the, in a polemic of saying, no, no, you don't want a king like Saul. You want a king like David. But also, Othniel of, uh, is, is one of only three judges who it is said that, of him that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. It's only said uh, of Gideon, Othniel, and Samson. And also notice who Othniel is. He is the son of Kenaz, the nephew and son-in-law of Caleb, and he dwells in the land of Judah. Now, he's, he's not a Judahite by birth. He's a Kenizzite, one of the nations that was to be dispossessed in Genesis 15. But Caleb has been integrated into the tribe so much so as to be chosen as one of the 12 spies. Now his nephew and son-in-law will become one of the twelve judges. But while Othniel has the honor of being the first judge and the representative of Judah, the author of Judges also wants you to remember that he's actually a foreigner. He's not one of the Israelites by birth. It's not his connection to Caleb. It's not his native prowess that enables him to defeat Cushan the doubly wicked. It is rather because the Lord raises him up and fills him with his spirit and gives Kushan Rishathayim into Othniel's hand. Now, in all of the other cycles, we'll get more details. Here, we're simply told that God gave Othniel the victory and the land had peace for a generation. Forty years, that's basically a generation. And the basic point of this narrative, indeed one of the basic points in the book of Judges, is that when God's people abandon the Lord, they invoke his curse. Because God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his covenant. When he says he will do something, he will do it. And so when he says that if you rebel against me and you worship other gods, I will bring judgment against you, he will do it. Just like he said he would do it seven times. And so... And when his people cry out to him, he will deliver them. And that's what he does. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon his anointed deliverer because his faithfulness means that in the end he will raise up a deliverer, that he will dethrone the powers that oppress his church. The Spirit of the Lord will, be, will come upon the anointed deliverer. Indeed, that's what happens at the Jordan River when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jesus, empowering him to defeat all his and our enemies. Because we have that Spirit-anointed deliverer from the tribe of Judah. We have King Jesus. And he gives us rest, not just for a generation, but for eternal life. Now, the, the second cycle in verses 12 to 30, contain all the same elements as the first. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord raised up Eglon of Moab against Israel. They serve him 18 years. 18 years, Israel is now under the oppression of, of Moab. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a deliverer, Ehud. The Lord gives his enemies into his hand, and the land had rest for 80 years, two generations. Now, these first two cycles of Othniel and Ehud are the only two that will contain all five elements from the, the pattern that we saw in chapter 2. After these first two, the cycles will start omitting one or two of these literary elements describing the story, signaling the degeneration of Israel. As Israel degenerates, so also does the literary structure of the book of Judges. 
Now, the, the Eglon Ehud story is something of a satire on Moab, with a little bit of fun poked at Ehud as well. Now, there's a certain irony in the choice of Moab as an oppressor. God had told Israel to leave Moab alone. We heard that this morning in Jehoshaphat's prayer. Jehoshaphat had prayed, Lord, you told us not to go after uh, Edom and Moab and Ammon, and now they're coming after us? Well, that's been going on for a while now. This because Jehoshaphat says that 300 years after Ehud's day. But Eglon, the king of Moab, is now God's chosen instrument to bring judgment against his rebellious people. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it is worth, it is worth saying out loud that there are times when, because of our rebellion, the Lord strengthens our enemies in order to bring, bring discipline to our lives. Now, that may sound like, oh no, you should be glad. Just think about the alternative. If God allows you to remain in your rebellion, that's not going to end well. Because your rebellion doesn't just stop with little things. I mean, it's going to keep going. Your rebellion is going to continue until you abandon the Lord and, well, that leads to hell. So when, when God raises up an enemy against us in order to chastise us, that's a good thing for us. This morning I focused on the, the, the suffering that comes from sort of the, sort of the innocent suffering, the suffering that, is, is, that God is using to conform us to the likeness of Christ. But it's worth noting that we also have suffering in our lives where God is raising up an Eglon to say, you've got to stop this. You've got to turn away from your sin because the suf- some, some of the suffering in your life is given to you in order to help you to see how much you should hate sin. And that's what Eglon's doing here. So God strengthens him against Israel and he he gathers to himself the Ammonites, his cousins, and the Amalekites in order to attack Israel. They cross over the Jordan River and they take the city of Palms, this is near Jericho, and they establish a fortress on the west side of the river. This is, and this becomes, this becomes Moab's sort of military outpost on the west side of the Jordan, which he uses then to control Israel and, 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 and require the, the, the annual payment of, of, of the the the, uh, the plunder that they, they, they have to pay a, tri- a tribute rather to, to to Moab every year, and it's here at the city of Palms. I mean, the irony of that. This is this is where Israel had crossed the Jordan. This is where they had they had won the great victory at Jericho, and now a Moabite establishes his throne there for eighteen years. Now, again, uh, Eglon is probably not his given name. Eglon means basically grease. Uh, it, uh, fat cow might not be a bad way of putting it, especially given that when he's used, when, he, when he's described as a very fat man, that's the term that's used for a, a fattened calf. The author of Judges is serving him up as a fattened calf going to the slaughter. So it's Eglon, probably not his given name, but it's a nickname that the Israelites would have used. Yeah, King Fatten Calf. 
Um, and then they cried out to the Lord, because after 18 years, they're tired of this. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. It doesn't say that they repented. It does say that they cried out. I mean, this is where God is merciful. There are times when it's, it's, it's not that Israel is doing everything right. They're not really repenting and turning from their sin. But they're crying out. And God has mercy. God is merciful. Don't think that you have to get your act together in order for God to pay attention to you. No, you have to cry out. (laughs) And he pays attention. And he sends a deliverer. Now, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. In this case, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. There are, a few, there are a few descriptions as packed with meaning and significance as this one. Okay, so he's a Benjaminite. At the end of the book of Judges, we'll hear about the Benjaminite rebellion where Israel goes to war against Benjamin and only 600 men of the entire tribe of Benjamin survive that judgment. At the end of the book of Judges, Benjamin becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah in their rebellion against the Lord. And so they become very much like Sodom and Gomorrah in the destruction that is wreaked upon the house of Benjamin. Now in chapter 20, verse 28, we will be told that this rebellion occurred in the days of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So Phinehas was the high priest at the end of the book of Judges. That should tell you that the last story in the book of Judges is not chronologically the last story in the book. It's simply the, it's put at the end of the book because that's, it's telling you this is the emblematic of how, how the whole story ends. But it's worth noting that the last story in the book of Judges actually happens towards the beginning of the book, chronologically. Eleazar, as we're told in the book of Joshua, died shortly after the death of Joshua. Which means that the, the basically the, the, the story at the end of the book, in chapters 19 to 21, must have taken place within 40, 50 years, a generation of the death of Joshua. Okay, so we're doing the math. Okay, 40 years after the death of Joshua. So Otniel, think about, we've, we've, already heard, we've, we've heard a lot about Otniel so far. Otniel, the first judge of Israel, he's the same generation as Phineas. So the events of, of Judges 19 to 21 happen during the judgeship of Otniel. So just wrap your mind around that one for a second. The end of the, 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 in other words, Judges 19 to 21 have already happened before we get to Ehud. Now, it's appropriate to say that Judges does not necessarily give us a, a chronology of the book. Chapter 3, verse 12, does not say that the 18 years of Eglon's rule began exactly at the end of Otniel's 40 years of rest. There, there could be all sorts of overlap, especially when you consider the fact that the judges exist in different parts of Israel. So you could have several of these judges almost simultaneously, things going on in different parts of the country. So it's, it, it don't, if, if you, some people have tried to sort of lay it out in a, in a line that's, the book never says you should do that. The text, however, when you, but it does say that, that this comes after Otniel. So the text strongly suggests that, that Ehud 
If he's a Benjaminite, Ehud is either one of the survivors, he's either one of the 600 men who survived Judges 21, or he's their son. He or his father is one of the 600 men. And that's where the description of verse 15 is so interesting. The son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, uh, the son of Gerah, in 2 Samuel 16, Shimei, the son of Gerah, a Benjaminite, mocks David, calling down curses on him. Ehud is a deliverer of Israel, and for that we should give thanks. But unlike Othniel, Ehud does not have the best of connections. Othniel is connected to Caleb. Othniel is connected to Judah. Ehud is a son of Gera, like Shimei, the one who cursed and mocked David. And it gets worse. Because <laughs> he's left-handed. Do you know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. Now, the word for left-handed here doesn't just say left-handed. It's actually restricted or crippled in your right hand. So here's a son of my right hand who can't use his right hand. In fact, the, the form of the word Benjamin here is not the normal form of Benjamin. It actually highlights the right-handedness of his name. So it means that he is the son of my right hand par excellence who happens to be restricted in his right hand. He can't use his right hand, so he's a left-handed man. Now, the only other place in the entire Bible where this term restricted in, in his right hand is used happens to be in Judges 20, where it describes 700 Benjaminite warriors who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, all of whom happen to be restricted in their right hand. And then you're like, and there were only 600 Benjaminites who survived, and Ehud is either one of those left-handed slingers, or he's the son of one of those left-handed slingers. Now, given the fact that these sons of the right hand had turned over to their left hands, the reader is left with a certain doubt as to Ehud's character. He's a right, son of my right hand who can't use his right hand. Now, the thing is, it's important to say, the Lord raised him up to deliver Israel. But it doesn't say that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, the judge from Judah. But the Spirit of the Lord did not come upon Ehud, the deliverer from Benjamin. And in fact, Ehud is never even called a judge. He's, he's a, he delivered Israel, but it doesn't say that he judged Israel. He is not put on the same level as Othniel. Well, now we know something about this Ehud. And now this, this left-handed son of my right hand is chosen to bring tribute to Eglon. But before he goes, he, he makes a, a special sword about 18 inches long and fastens it to his right thigh. And from what we can tell of this the, the, the special manufacture, it probably doesn't have a cross piece on it. Uh, we'll understand why a bit later. But, um, but also, I mean, this is, this is, it's, designed, it's designed for one use and only. After presenting the tribute to Eglon, he leaves the city of the Palms, but when he came to the idols at Gilgal, 
wait, 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 wait. Idols at Gilgal? Do you remember, where, remember Gilgal? Gilgal was where Israel crossed the Jordan River and came into the promised land and they built a monument of 12 stones to remember God's faithfulness in bringing his people into the promised land the land that he promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants forever and now there are idols at Gilgal this is not going well Ehud returns from the idols at Gilgal alone and comes back and, and says that he has a secret message for the king. Now, perhaps the fact that Ehud comes from these idols gave him credibility. Perhaps the reason that the fact that he returns alone lures Eglon into a false sense of security. But either way, the fat, stupid cow says, hush. It's uh, translated as silence, but hush. It's, that's the Hebrew word. Most, most languages, you say, hush, everybody knows what, what that means because it's one of those, whatever, those, whatever that fancy word is for what the sound of the word is, what the, what the meaning of the word is, hush. And so he, everybody leaves the room so that he can hear this message. And now apparently fearing that someone will overhear this secret message, Eglon takes Ehud into his cool roof chamber, which would be the, the bathroom. Uh, this is this, in those days. Uh, you, you start to see by this point. You already have the the basics of plumbing developing in ancient cities. You'll have a river diverted underneath the palace, so that uh, at least the king and maybe a few other of his most trusted people can have they can have you know sort of indoor plumbing where they can go to the bathroom and uh, and the water will carry all the sewage out of the city. Great design. So. But he comes and he brings him into the cool roof chamber so that he can hear this secret message. And Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. Now apparently Eglon had been sitting, but now hearing this message from God, he stands up. Well, when a very fat man stands up, he has to bend down. And he's probably not looking at Ehud because if you've ever seen a very fat man trying to stand up, He's, it, it's hard to keep your keep, look straight ahead while you're... And so as Eglon bends forward, Ehud strikes. He reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. So there's probably not a cross piece there because nothing stops it from going right on through. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of the belly. And the dung came out. As often happens when someone dies, he he defecates. And then verse 23 says that Ehud went out into the porch. Now your your ESV footnote says that the meaning of the Hebrew word is uncertain. Uh, The word hamisterona is not clearly related to any other Hebrew word. Uh, There is one of the word found at the end of verse 22, however, haparsedona, is equally difficult to translate, but through careful cognate studies, they've noticed this word seems to have something to do with dung. Now, the author of Judges is using these two very rare words in order to help you make a connection between them. If the dung came out of Eglon, then what did Ehud come out of? Ehud went out, or perhaps better, went down the hole in the middle of the floor. After all, it says that he closed the doors and locked them. Now, 
in our day, that doesn't say, mean anything to us. You can close doors and lock them from either side. But in those days, to lock a door, you have to be inside the room. You got a bar that goes like this. Now, you can unlock the door from the outside with a key, namely the right size stick that you pop the lock with, but if you're going to lock the door, you got to be inside the room. Now, also, our, our author may be portraying the Moabites as a little dull-witted, but it would stretch even their stupidity to suggest that they would let a foreigner just walk out of an audience with their king alone and without question. And, of course, the uh, most compelling is that the connection of this very unique Hebrew word with the various euphemisms for things scatological in other Semitic languages. So Ehud closes the door, he locks it, and he goes out through the sewer. He's a hero, but he smells pretty funny while he's doing it. Meanwhile, the servants of Eglon are wondering what's happening. The door to the roof chamber is locked, and they they wait as long as they could until they were embarrassed, uh, literally until they writhed. Yes, they gotta go, and they're dancing around, and the only bathroom is occupied, but it's the king, so you don't want to say anything, but he's been in there for such a long time, and we're not hearing anything, and where is that Ehud guy anyway? Finally, they get the key, and in fact, I mean, it's quite possible, given the fact that he defecated when he died, it's quite possible that they're spelling, because it's like, something didn't go down the hole properly, Something else did go down the hole improperly. And they opened the door, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Now, due to the delay, Ehud has had time to escape and comes to the hill country of Ephraim and sounds the trumpet calling on Ephraim to follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they go down to the fords of the Jordan to prevent the Moabites from crossing, and they slaughter every Moabite on the west side of the Jordan, 10,000 in all. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years, two generations. Now, the, the point of the story is, is not especially to defend assassination as the way of defeating your enemies. The narrator makes no value judgment either way on that point. The point is that God himself is the one who gives victory over his enemies, that he has been gracious to an undeserving people. But it's also worth noting that Ehud is never called a judge, nor does it say that he judged Israel for any length of time. He was raised up by the Lord to deliver Israel, and so we should honor him for that. And also, Ehud attributes the victory to the Lord. This is where, you know, I I have no problem on the one hand saying he's a smelly character, but he's also, he's a faithful one. He's a faithful character. He he attributes the victory to the Lord. Follow after me, for the Lord has given the Moabites into your hands. Now, as we'll see as we go through the book, the voices get more and more forgetful of the Lord. In Gideon's day, they will cry out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, which in and of itself is when you add Gideon to the Lord, that's becoming at least questionable. But Gideon's son, Abimelech, will say that it it was Gideon who fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. The Lord is entirely absent from Abimelech's retelling of the story. So, Ehud should be seen as a faithful deliverer who called the people of God to trust in the Lord. 
But in contrast with the squeaky clean Otniel, Ehud smells a little funny. Do you want to judge from Judah? Or do you want one of those morally questionable Benjaminites who are crippled in their right hands and don't... You know, do you want a, a ruler who has the spirit of the Lord or one who stabs his enemies when they're defenseless? Is it going too far to see a preview of Saul hurling a spear at the defenseless David or at the defenseless Jonathan, his own son? But if Ehud smells funny as he escapes through the sewer... Shamgar is a bizarre character. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Period. (laughs) Who is Shamgar? Uh, Now, he comes after the time of Ehud, and before the time of Deborah and Barak. Uh, His name is included in the Song of Deborah. But Shamgar ben Anath is an enigmatic figure. Shamgar is not a Semitic name. He he might be a Canaanite who had converted to Yahweh. For that matter, he could be an Egyptian general who delivers Israel by accident while fighting the enemies of Egypt. Who is Shamgar? We have no idea. Now, Anath is a Canaanite goddess. She's, she's a warrior goddess who could hold her own in battle against the gods. So to be called the son of Anat is to say he's one gnarly dude. It is, this is, this is, he's the son of the warrior goddess. Boom. Now, of course, why? I mean, if, if he's an Israelite, why is he being called son of Anat? Son of the Canaanite warrior goddess. That's, uh, plain, you know, plainly, not all is well with Israel. And yet, Shamgar delivers Israel by killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I mean, the weapons in the book of Judges are all over the map. They're just, they're, you know, Samson, the last judge, will slaughter the Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. Here, Shamgar has an ox goad. It's, it's an eight-foot-long pole with a, a sharp point at one end for prodding the ox and then a, a six-inch paddle on the other end for scraping off the plow when it gets clogged with mud. It's a fairly unwieldy weapon, but if you're a big, gnarly dude like Shamgar, he could be used for pretty, pretty good effect. And this is where, as we'll see in the coming chapters, we see women and foreigners, named after pagan goddesses, no less, delivering Israel from their enemies. God will deliver his people. He may use remarkable means to do it, but he will be faithful to his promises even when we are faithless. Dale Ralph Davis comments that if Yahweh be the maker of heaven and earth, he has all resources in his hand. Can he not deliver his people not only by many or by few, but also by disciples or by pagans? If Yahweh raises up Shamgar as a savior for Israel, surely later when he uses Cyrus, that should come as no surprise. As the former blind man exclaimed, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We don't know where Shamgar comes from, but he saved Israel. You see, 
God uses all sorts of strange, weird, odd means. It was, I learned something yesterday at Monte's funeral. Apparently, apparently it was actually, from what I could tell, perhaps even an, an unbeliever who rescued Monte from the gangs. <laughs> because it was a, a guy he was, he was in a, in a group with dancing who said, it's, it's either the streets or it's us. You can't do both. And that was the first step that God used in bringing Monte to himself. It was the first step. By no means was it the last step, and it wasn't the preaching of the gospel at that point. It was, it was a friend who said, you can't have it both ways. And we don't want those people hanging out at our club, clubs where we're performing because that leads to all sorts of stuff we don't want. But that's where, when you think about what God does, God uses all sorts of unusual means in order to accomplish his ends. And as, as Shamgar shows us, that, and indeed as Ehud shows us, God accomplishes his purposes through, well, through the, the unlikeliest of characters. So that's where remembering that as you consider in the ordinary everyday stuff of life, God continues to use the unlikely means. And so when, when, we, when we assume that, ah, we know how God's going to do things, sometimes we lose sight of the ways that God actually works because op- keeping our eyes open for what is God doing in the midst of the the unusual and the yeah that's important so let's pray and ask God to show us his ways Lord help us because we too often assume that everything's going to be like oatmeal and that you'll raise up the the one from from Judah and yet even as you showed us with oatmeal you raised up a Gentile to become the great deliverer from Judah and then you raised up a questionable fellow in, in Ehud and then a totally unlikely candidate in Shamgar. And yet, you used all of these men to save Israel. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you because you have continued to do this and you raised up an Ethiopian eunuch to take your gospel back to Ethiopia. You raised up Unlikely characters who, he raised up a Benjaminite like Saul who was persecuting your people and you called him Paul and sent him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Father, we we marvel at how you, you use the ordinary, you use the unusual, you use the downright weird. And so we pray that you would help us to, to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, your son who came born of a virgin. Talk about unusual. And you saved us. You delivered us. You brought us out of death into life that we who once were slaves to sin might be made your own children, fellow heirs with your beloved son. Lord, have mercy on us and help us as we walk before you to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to trust you to seek first your kingdom, that 
that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us, Lord, to know your will, to do your will, to submit to your will, to trust that you know what you're doing. Help us to be cheerful and constant in our faithfulness to you, in doing the things that we know that you have called us to do. And then help open our eyes that we might see and open, give us strength that we might do that which you set before us. Help us in our homes as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as, as roommates and, 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 and as friends and colleagues in our work and teachers and students in our schools, in every place where you put us, Lord. Help us to know you, to love you, and to do what you have called us to do. Be with those, O Lord, who are afflicted and in trouble. Have mercy on the weak and the frail. Have mercy on those who are afflicted and enduring trials. Have mercy, Lord, on those who, who grieve the loss of loved ones. And pray especially for the Jacobsons, that you'd have mercy on Matt and Naomi and their families. Have mercy... Have mercy upon the McGills and Monte's family. Lord, be gracious and shine the light of your countenance upon them. Be with all those who grieve, that they, their grief might, might be turned to joy in the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.